If you have a Bible, turn with me to the book of Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. And I'm going to read the first six verses of this chapter of Exodus chapter 20. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me and showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. These are the words of God. Let's pray. Father, as we look to Your Word and specifically to Your law, Lord, we ask that You would visit with us and help us to understand what You've spoken. Lord, I pray that walls of rebellion and walls of tradition would be broken down. Father, I pray that Your people would rise to the occasion of obedience and delight in Your law. Lord, lead us into all truth. Guide us into the Scriptures. Illuminate our hearts and our minds so that we might understand. And Lord, where our, our sinful nature and our natural inclinations cause us to question Your Word, Lord, I pray that we would examine Your Word faithfully. That we would be like the Bereans who examined the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Lord, I pray that no one would take my word for anything today, but we would look closely to your law. We ask these things because we believe that they accord with the will and the doctrine of Jesus Christ, your Son. Amen. You may have a seat. In our sequential study of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18, we come across... A statement where Jesus tells Peter and us that He will build His church. And so last week we began to look in detail at this church that Jesus is speaking of. We answered several questions last week sort of in uh, preparation and begin, beginning to look at the study of the church and just to sort of get our, begin to get our minds wrapped around what the church is. The first question we answered is, is what is the church? Negatively, in, in the context of Matthew's gospel, it's very helpful for us to understand that the church is not the kingdom. Positively, the church is a called out assembly of God's people called out of the world to gather together around the glory of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what the church is. Then we answer the question, where is the church? 
And the answer is the church is everywhere. The Bible gives reference when it uses this word church, and especially in the New Testament. And I say especially in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word church is used. Uh, the Israelites were called the church in the wilderness. But in the New Testament, the church, this word church is often used in reference to churches that would meet in homes, uh, churches that would be um, called out believers in a region. Uh, the church is also uh, made reference to in, in regards to the universal church. All of God's elect from the beginning of the world until the end of the world. Everywhere that you can go and find a group of Christians who gather together under the Word of God to preach the gospel and, um, and, and uh, partake in these sacraments that Jesus has commanded, there you have a church. Then we answer the question, what does the church look like? And the New Testament gives us many different pictures or analogies uh, to help us understand the church. The church is a body with Christ as her head. The church is a bride with, with, with Christ as her bridegroom. The church is a building with Christ as her chief cornerstone and her builder. The church is like a sheepfold with Christ as the good shepherd. The church is like a household with Christ as the eldest son placed in authority over the house. The church is like a gathering of servants under Christ as their master. And the New Testament says that the church is the temple of God. The place where the presence of God comes down and dwells in the midst of humanity. And every one of these things, these analogies, add some sort of insight into this great mystery that is the church. The church is not something new. The church is not plan B. The church is not step two. The church has always been the plan from before time began. Then we answered the question after all of that. The main question that we uh, set out to answer last week was, whose church is it? Is this church my church? Is it our church? Is the church across town their church or his church? Is the church across the street his church or their church? And the answer to all of those is no. The church, whether it's a small group of believers meeting in a home or a group of believers meeting in a tent in Cambodia or whether it's all believers from the beginning of time to the end of time all over the globe, the church belongs to Jesus Christ because He purchased her at the price of His own blood. The Father elected the church. The Son came into human history to ransom, to purchase the bride off of the auction block and then the Spirit then is sent to apply this salvation and call us out of darkness into light, out of the kingdom of darkness into the domain of God's beloved Son. The church belongs to Jesus, not us. So this week we're going to begin looking at um, a second set of questions uh, concerning the purpose of the church, or more specifically, why does the church exist? If the church is an assembly of people called out of the world to gather around the glory of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ, then why not just ransom us at the cross and then just translate us into heaven immediately? If God already knew who He was going to save from the beginning of the world, then why not just go ahead and bring our souls into heaven and, and allow the bride to be with her groom? Why are we still here? What's our purpose in being on this earth? And from the outset, as we study the church, we need to remember what we set as our foundation last week. Since the church belongs to Christ, then He is the one who establishes our purpose for existence and continuing on this earth, not us. 
We don't get together with a whiteboard and write out our purpose statement and say, well, this is what we think God's called us to do. We look to Scripture and we see what Jesus has commanded His church locally and globally to do. That's where we find our purpose. Since the church is the body of Christ, then our purpose is to carry out the work of the head who is Christ. There's no uh, body in here, a physical body who simply does as it wishes while the brain is trying to control it to do something else. If that's happening, there's a problem, there's an issue. Seek help. That's not the way a body works. Since the church is the bride of Christ, then she comes here to support the cause and the mission of her groom. The bride comes in afterwards as the helper meet for the groom, suitable for the groom, to come in and alongside of him and help him. That's the way a marriage works, and that's the way the church comes in to serve Christ. And since we are slaves of Christ, then we come before Christ, and there we receive our marching orders. We receive our duties. We're not our own. We're bought with a price. Therefore, we must glorify God in our physical bodies and in the church, the spiritual body. So, over the next three weeks, we're going to look at three different things that I believe everything that the church is commanded to do can be summed up under these three headings. One is worship, which we'll look at today. The second is evangelism, which we'll look at next week. And then the third one is, I'm, I'm calling it nurture. Most systematic theologies would say mercy, um, but I'm going to call it nurture because that's going to help me explain what uh, the, the purpose is. Worship evangelism, and nurture. So today we're going to talk about worship. Worship actually encompasses all three of those. If we just wanted to sum up in one word why the church exists, the totality of everything we are to be doing, the answer would be worship. Everything. Evangelism is an act of worship. Nurture, whether it be sanctifying the saints through the preaching of the Word or, or going out and helping the poor and the defenseless, the, the orphan and the widow in the world. It's all worship. And so we're going to begin by talking about worship and specifically the worship of the church as she gathers. As we get together here, we, we have a, we're having a worship service and we're going to talk about that today and, and, and what we believe the Bible teaches we should do and, and why we believe it. As a qualifier, I was telling the men last night, every time a preacher comes to the Scriptures to preach, the thought should go into his head with the Apostle Paul, who is sufficient for these things? Every time. I cannot teach this. I can't make you understand it. I can't get you there. But there are some things that are more so uh, in this category than others. And as I was working this week and just trying to think about um, how this sermon would go, I uh, came to a point of, of utter helplessness because this is one of those topics. When, when, I, when we come to the holiness of God and I were to teach about the holiness of God, I can't, I can't scratch it. I can't even begin to... I can't in my own mind begin to fathom the majestic holiness of God, let alone teach it. I can't get you there from here. God must come in His Spirit and show you this is how holy I am. Uh, the same goes with um, the sinfulness of our sin. I could read Scripture and show you, this man was killed for the sin you're committing. This man was speared to the ground. This man had a stake driven through his temple. These children were mauled to death by bears for the sins that they were committing. 
and many of us would go home and continue in our sin because unless God comes and shows you your sin is this bad, you can't, you can't get there from here. And today we're looking at worship. This is another biblical doctrine, the importance of which I simply cannot convey. I can't do it. The, the English language doesn't convey it. My intellect doesn't convey it. I can't stress to you enough how important it is. I can't get your mind to comprehend it. I can't move your heart enough to help you see how vitally important the concept of worship is. And so my prayer has been and is that God would simply come and help us to understand this. Um, I'm going to use a lot of Scripture. We're going to read a lot of Bible because I believe the power is in the Word and I'm going to try to just let the Scripture speak and God has said His Word does not return void. Either you're going to be hardened toward God and worship or you're, you're going to be softened in your worship toward God. And my prayer is that we would walk out of here with a conviction about worship. I told the men last night, we come here and we do what we do mostly because that's the only option. No, nobody is showing up at 9 o'clock and saying, well, hey, I thought we would do this song and I thought we would cover this passage. You show up and do what we call a worship service because it's already laid out. And if we go out here, oftentimes we would say, well, that's their preference and this is our preference. This is what we do. My prayer is that you would walk out of here and say, no, this is what the Bible says should be happening. And if you're not doing this, it's sin. This is my conviction as an individual Christian. And so that's, that's my prayer. So when we looked in Matthew chapter 16, uh, Peter's confession, the foundation on which the church is built. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Okay, And I said that if someone were to ask you what type of church you're a part of, you might say a Baptist church, but if you wanted to be really specific, you might say a confessional, reformed Baptist church. And that week I talked about what it means to be confessional. We have adopted a historic confession of faith wherein we say we believe what they believe. We confess what they confessed. And we, can, we believe we can trace our doctrine all the way back to the apostles and Christ Himself and the Word of God. We've not come up with anything new. That's confessional. But then I also use that word reformed. And I said most of us probably don't even know what that term means. If, I were to, if, if you told somebody that you were a reformed Christian, they probably wouldn't understand it. And you might not even understand it. As a matter of fact, most people, when they hear the term reformed, they assume you're talking about Calvinism. Five points of Calvinism, specifically the doctrine of soteriology, how we are saved. Total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. They assume if you say, I'm reformed, then you're just saying you believe that about salvation, but that's not true. When we say we are reformed, we are saying we are the offspring of, the, the, we, we come from the heritage of the Protestant Reformation. That there was a time when the Roman Catholic Church had a monopoly on religion and certain men began to speak out and say, no, that's not right. We, we, that doctrine is wrong. That's heresy. We, we, we protest that. We protest this church and all that she teaches. And this came to a head 
on October 31st, 1517, when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the wall there in Germany. And it, basically, 95 problems that he found with the theology of the Roman Catholic Church. That was the beginning of what we call the, the, the majority or the main part of the Protestant Reformation. And if we are Protestants, then we say we're in that line. We protest that Roman Catholic Church. But when we say we are Reformed, we don't mean Martin Luther reformed the church and we just believe what he believed because we're not Lutherans. And we don't even mean, well, then Calvin came along and, and we believe what Calvin believed because we're not Presbyterians. And we don't even uh, follow many men throughout history who have been in this tradition and we say, well, simply because they believed it, we believed it. They reformed and we are a part of that reform. We believe in the motto, Semper Reformanda, which means always reforming. Anytime we have a tradition or a mindset in the church and we come to the Scriptures and we say, wait a second, that's not, that's not right. We say, we will reform. We will change. And the word reform means to go back to the way it was at the beginning. We will reform it to its original state. So, if we go back to the Protestant Reformation and we study our history, we find something very interesting. While many believe that the Reformation centered around salvation and salvific doctrine, like justification by faith or uh, the five points of Calvinism so-called, what we find if we study history is that the Reformation was actually about something even bigger than how we are saved. See, as people, we think the most important part of theology is how we, how we are saved. The part that affects us the best. But listen to this from John Calvin as he uh, writes in, in a pamphlet called The Necessity of Reforming the Church. He says this, If it be inquired then, by what things chiefly the Christian religion has a standing existence among us and maintains its truth, it will be found that the following two not only occupy the principal place, but comprehend under them all other parts and consequently the whole substance of Christianity. Calvin said, the, the Geneva Reformer, there are two things that all of Christianity can be summed up under. And he says that is a knowledge first of the mode in which God is duly worshipped. And secondly, of the source from which salvation is to be obtained. See, the Protestant Reformation was not just about salvation. It was about worship, first and foremost. Before soteriology, before tulip, there was the worship of God. And, and specifically, not just worship, but the mode in which God is duly worshipped. In other words, how we worship God is the most important thing in the Christian church. So when we say we are a Reformed church, or you tell someone I am a Reformed Baptist Christian or a Reformed Christian, what you are saying is, or you're, you're making a statement first and foremost about how you believe God is to be worshipped in the gathered assembly of His people and then flowing out of that, how we worship God as individuals and in the home. The defining factor of our faith the defining factor of our lives is how we believe God ought to be worshipped. 
So, first heading is, what does this word worship mean? And this will be recap. We've, we've studied this a little bit. And a lot of what I'm going to say today I've covered before. A while back we went through a series in our calls to worship just looking at these various uh, points. But now we're going to put it all together and see what God says about worship. In the Old Testament and in the New Testament, the words that are translated into worship, most of them carry very much the same meaning. The words mean to bow down or to prostrate oneself, to serve, to work for, to pay homage, to show reverence, to show devotion. The words, some of the words literally mean to, like a dog, lick the hand of its master. That's the word worship in Scripture. Notice I did not say that the word worship in Scripture means to sing or to feel good or to lift your hands or to feel the rhythm of the music or to close your eyes in worship. Now, those things may happen as we express our or show our devotion to God, but those are not in and of themselves acts of worship. Now we come to the English language. The word worship comes from two words, worth-ship, which means ascribing worth and value. We're looking at the object of our worship and we're saying, by my expressions, I'm showing that object is valuable to me. And, and we are actually showing of what value it holds. And I, this is the analogy I use. If I'm willing to give $5 for a shirt, I'm saying, well, that shirt's worth $5 to me. But if it's worth $100 to me, as absurd as that may sound to somebody else, I'm going to fork over the cash. And I'm going to show that is worth $100. It's a $100 shirt. And when we come to worship God, it's the same way. The way that we express our devotion and our affections for God, that displays what God means to us. We are ascribing worth and value. And when we as a church gather for a worship service, we're gathering to do just that. We are coming to display openly our devotion to God. We're coming to express our conviction that God is of greater dignity and value than we are. See, when you bow to someone, you are showing that the person to whom you are bowing is of greater value and dignity. When you serve someone, you're saying that person is worth my service. They are of greater dignity and value to me. And when we come to worship God and express our devotion to God, we're saying God is worth this much of my service and my devotion. God is worth more than anything. God is the supreme value and delight of the universe. And so I come to display that. And we gather to here to, hear, to, to worship. That's what we're saying. So we do this through coming and sitting under the Word. This is the way we express our devotion. Like servants who come to their master at the beginning of the day while it's still dark and they say, well, what's the itinerary for today? What are we out to accomplish? What, shall, what will you have us do today? That's how we come and we sit under the Word. We're here to receive our marching orders, our instructions, our our uh, statutes and the way that God would have us to live. We do this through prayer. We come here and we pray. Like a child coming to a father. And we, we pray saying, we thank you for your provisions for us, Father. And if it's not too much to ask, I'd like to have a, 
a new pillow, or my, my blanket's worn out. That's prayer. We're coming like children to express the high and lofty position of our Father as our provider and, and our maker. We do this through singing like a group of bond servants and slaves who get together to celebrate the kindness and the goodness and the faithfulness and the love of their master. That's what we do when we sing. We're celebrating God's goodness. These are just a few of the ways in which we as the church of Jesus Christ display our devotion. We outwardly display our inward devotion to God, our Heavenly Father. In our hearts, God is of supreme value, and that flows out through outward acts of worship. Now what's interesting is that if you were to go to a hundred different churches on a hundred different Sundays, you would walk away with probably at least 50 or more different experiences that are called worship services. Some churches you're going to walk into and you'll see a pastor riding a bull or someone jumping up a motorcycle across a stage. You might see a concert. Some churches you might see a political rally. Some churches you might walk in and see absolutely no musical instrumentation whatsoever. You might, see, might walk in and see pictures of Mary and venerated saints all over the walls in some church buildings. You might see icons and ornate decorations in some churches. The question is, if we are all servants of the same God, worshiping the same God, and our worship, or why would our worship look any different? Why do all Christian worship services, according to a general principle, not just look the same? If the Bible is our authority and we all have the same Bible and Christ is our head, we all have the same head, we're all part of the same body, then why is there so much distinction and often dispute and argument over what takes place in the church when we gather to worship, when we gather to serve, when we gather to bow ourselves, to express our devotion to our God... We claim to be servants of the same God with the same word, then why would it ever look any different? And so that leads us to the second question. We understand what worship is. And the second question is, by what mode do we worship? Or that might be better asked, by what mode must we worship? And that brings us to our text, Exodus chapter 20. The reason I read from Exodus chapter 20 and specifically the first two of the Ten Commandments is because these are the foundational bedrock for what we believe to be the biblical view of worship. The biblical position is found in the first two of God's Ten Commandments. Now, as an aside, our misunderstanding of these ten rules, when I say our, I'm talking about the people in this room and also the broader church, our misunderstanding of these ten rules has led us to an ignorance concerning what sin is and what is sin. And I hope you understand the difference in those phrases. Many things that we do on a regular basis are so obviously sinful when compared to the Word of God and yet we don't know it because we've never gone back to the first ten rules God ever gave. The, the foundation of God's law. Many of us by this time ought to be teachers and yet we should be going back to the elemental principles of God's law. And I would recommend to anyone an in-depth study of the Ten Commandments. 
Study God's law. Whenever the Old Testament writers would write about the law of God, they're talking about the Ten Commandments, God's moral law. I delight in your law. It's sweeter to my lips than honey, more precious to me than gold and silver. It's the Ten Commandments. And yet, I wonder how many of us could quote them. God's foundational law. That's just a burning in the soul of a, of a pastor who spiritually, mentally, and physically in, in, in his body aches over his own sin and the sin of his people. So study God's law. But as we imagine, or, or as we look at God's law, I would imagine that if I were to ask anybody in here, put the first two commandments in your own words you would basically say the same thing twice, just stated differently. If I were to ask you, what does the first commandment mean? You would say, probably, the first commandment means you may not have any other gods except for the one true God. And then I would say, well, then what does the second commandment mean? And you would say, you may not have any graven images to worship. Do you realize that's just saying the same thing in two different ways? If we can only have one God, then we can only worship one... There can only be one true object of our worship. Therefore, the question of who or what we may worship is already established in commandment one. It's done. Worship Yahweh. Anything that is not Yahweh may not be worshipped. So then we come to the second commandment. And either this commandment is just restating the same thing in different words, or... It's a different commandment with different meaning. Now, if we were Roman Catholic, we would say all of this is one commandment. It's the first commandment. But we're not. We believe these are two separate commandments. Many people assume that the command in commandment number two, and and, um, I'm going to stick very closely to my notes here because this can be somewhat confusing. Many people think that the command in commandment two is simply... Don't make any graven images. To accept that as simply the teaching of the second commandment is to misunderstand the context of the giving of the Ten Commandments and also to believe that God gave us two commandments which basically both say the same thing, just worded differently. Oddly enough, the same people who would say, well, that just means don't make any carved images or any likenesses of anything and worship Him. Those same people have pictures of Jesus all over the place and statues and crucifixes and watch videos with portrayals of Christ who is God. The Bible says, you don't do that. If someone ever asks you what you believe about pictures of Jesus, I hope your response will be, I've never seen one. We don't have any pictures of Jesus. Anything you make of Jesus is a image. It is something you have concocted in your mind. But anyway, so we come to the context of these Ten Commandments. During this time period, the way that the foreign nations worshipped their gods and communed with their gods and attempted to experience worship with their gods was through making graven images. Now why is that? It's because their gods were not real. They had simply concocted them in their own imaginations, made up a figment of their imaginations that they believed resided somewhere in the sky or somewhere in another realm. And in an attempt to bring that idea close and worship it and feel like they're near to it, they had to make an image. No one ever literally worshipped the image as if the image was their God. When you bring up pictures of 
Jesus and things like this. And people say, well, I don't worship it. No one's ever worshipped an image. No one has ever said, yeah, that piece of wood right there, yeah, that's my God. They don't say that. What they mean is that is an idol that represents my false God. Because He's given me no revelation of Himself, and I don't really know anything about Him about except what I've made up in my imagination, I have to try to make something that kind of looks like something I've seen and just use that as my, my mode of worship. So they never actually worshipped the idol. It was a mode by which they worshipped the God that they had made in their minds. Their gods weren't real. They had no revelation. So, then God gives this second commandment. And He says, You shall have no graven images. You will not worship Me in the same way those people worship their gods. See, without revelation, they're lost. They have to make it up. They have to come up with some sort of revelation of their God on their own so that they can worship. But in the preface to the Ten Commandments, He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Why does He say that? Because He's making sure they understand all that pantheon of gods who was just demolished during the Exodus... Those are not your gods. I'm your God. I have rescued you. I have redeemed you. I have called you out as my assembly. And so you won't worship me like they worship their gods. So God, the true God, unlike the false gods of Egypt, He had revealed Himself. He had spoken and was continuing to speak and communicate with His people. And He's telling them, The modes by which those false gods are worshipped will not suffice. God's people would not need to create their own ways of worshipping God because they didn't need to. God's already revealed Himself. We don't have to try to just imagine what God is like. He's told us what He's like. So in essence, the second commandment says, you will not create of your own imagination the ways in which you think I should be worshipped. Commandment one, you worship only me. Commandment two, you worship me only in the way that I have revealed myself. And I'll prove this from Deuteronomy chapter 4. Remember, Deuteronomy is a second giving of the law. In Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 15, this is a bigger section, so follow along. Moses, preaching the law, says, Therefore, watch yourselves carefully. Notice the way this is phrased. Since, or because of this, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, beware. Because you didn't see me, beware, lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. And beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven. And when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the hosts of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them, things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. But, here's the contrast, the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of His own inheritance as you are to this day. Now notice God's reasoning there, His his reasoning and prohibition of idolatry and the correlation between the words there and the second commandment. In the second commandment it's, don't make any image of anything in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. And here it's male, female, winged birds, things that fly, things in the sea, sun, stars, anything you can see. You don't make something like that and use it as a mode 
of worship. And the reasoning is because you saw no form at Horeb, at Mount Sinai, to worship God by way of a form, a created image, in order to aid in your worship is forbidden. It's because the way, because of the way God has revealed Himself, His people don't need man-made aids. We don't need that. He's spoken. Commandment number one concerns who you worship. Commandment number two concerns how you worship. Or, as Calvin would say, the mode in which God is duly worshipped. As Christians, we worship God. And as Reformed Christians, we believe God has told us how we should worship. And that brings us to this biblical view of worship, the Reformed view, which is called the regulative principle of worship, which means Scripture regulates worship, the regulative principle. If we were to ask, how has God revealed Himself? The answer would be, in His Word. And then we ask, well, how do we know by what mode we are to worship? My creativity, my thing, things that I enjoy, things that come natural to me? No. God's Word. We go to God's Word. So when it comes to worshiping the God of the Bible, here are our, our three rules. Anything forbidden in Scripture is forbidden. Nobody's going to argue with that unless they're lost. Nobody's going to say, well, the Bible says I can't do it, but I think I'm going to do it anyway and call it worship. Nobody says that. So that's, we, ha- we have that in common. If it's forbidden in the Bible, we don't do it. Second rule, if it is commanded in the Bible, we must do it. And again, nobody really argues with that. If God has said to do it, we do it. We obey God. But here's the third rule, and this is the distinguishing mark. Anything not commanded in Scripture, is forbidden. Now, anything not commanded in Scripture is forbidden. Now, most evangelicals would say anything not forbidden in Scripture is permitted. Like, like a child, it's been said. Like a child, you come to them and you catch them doing something that they, you, they knew they shouldn't be doing, and you say, what are you doing? And they say, well, you didn't say I couldn't do it. It's a childish mentality. The biblical view is that if God has not commanded us to do it, we don't do it. So here are some examples from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there are many stories and examples of men who, in their attempts to worship God in their own self-conceived ways, were at best scolded and punished and at worst killed on the spot. Some of these we've seen before, but we need to be reminded of this often. This This concerns the character of God and what He requires of us. In the book of Genesis, Adam and Eve sin. And they, at the moment of their sin, see their shamefulness and they see their nakedness. And what does God do? He covers them with the skins of an animal. Now it doesn't say it, but we have to assume the skins of the animals came off of some animals that were slaughtered so that they could be covered. These animals were killed as an atonement to cover the shame of Adam and Eve. And what seems to be the case, the Bible doesn't expressly state this, but we we learn it as we follow it out. What seems to be the case is in that moment, at that time, God set forth the principle of His worship until the law would be given, which was sacrifice of life to atone for sin. And so we come to the next generation and we have Cain and Abel. Cain is a gardener. Abel is an animal farmer. 
Cain worships God by bringing the first of his produce. Abel brings an animal sacrifice. The book of Hebrews we read last week tells us that it was by faith that Abel offered a better sacrifice than Cain. What is faith? Faith is acting upon the revealed will of God. It's not blind. Somehow, Abel knew that God wanted this sacrifice and therefore he acted out of faith and trusted in that. But Cain worshipped according to his own imagination, his own designs, his own produce. And God said, I don't want it. I will not accept that worship. Now, he got off easy for that sin. Second example... This is the classic text on the regular principle of worship in Leviticus chapter 10. Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, the very first priests that God ever instituted to serve in His tabernacle. We read there in verse 1, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord which He had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. He just watched his sons get vaporized for worshiping in a way that God had not commanded. And he kept his mouth shut because God said... Among my people, you're not going to treat me like I'm just another person, like just any old sacrifice will do, like any old fire will do. All it's got to do is burn the incense. Any fire will do, right? Wrong. Only the fire I have commanded from the altar can be used in the worship. And their intent was to worship, but they did it in a way God had not commanded, and they died on the spot. Men had to come up and scoop up their bones and their clothes and carry them away. Third example. Numbers chapter 20, Moses at Meribah. God tells this to Moses. You know the story. The people are out of water. They're thirsty. They think they're going to die. This has already happened one time, and God has come through and given them water, and here they're complaining again. And so God says to Moses, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. This just, before I go any further, do you realize how much attention you need to pay to the commands of God? I mean, I could read that, and I bet most of us wouldn't even see the problem after Moses does this. But it says, Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock and said to them, Hear now, you rebels... Shall we bring water out of this rock for you, or for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice, and the water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock. Did you catch it? And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. You will not go into the promised land because you did not believe. What did he do? He hit the rock. God said, take the staff, talk to the rock. He took the staff and hit the rock, which he had already done one time. See, the last time he did this, he hit the rock because that's what God commanded. The second time, he doesn't say hit the rock, but he does hit the rock, and it's sin. And he says, you'll not go into the promised land because you did this. You didn't believe. 
and, and it goes on to say that there God showed Himself holy. Again, I'm going to be set apart. You will not come to me and just do whatever you please. Fourth example, Deuteronomy chapter 12. I'm going to begin reading in verse 29. When the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations whom you go in to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, take care that you be not ensnared to follow them after they have been destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods? That I may also do the same. Notice it's about the mode. How? You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. And here's the key verse, Deuteronomy 29 and verse 32. Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. God had just given all these instructions about the tabernacle and the worship there. And He says, you're going to go into this land. Don't look at how they worship. Don't even ask them how they worship. I've already commanded you how to worship. Worship my way. Do what I say. Don't take away from what I've said. Just do what has been commanded. Fifth example. In 1 Kings chapter 12, the kingdom has been divided. And we have an issue of worship and who the people are going to follow. And it says then... Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. We have two kings, Jeroboam and Rehoboam. And he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam king of Judah. And they will kill me and return to Rehoboam king of Judah. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel and the other in Dan. Then this thing became a sin, for the people went as far as Dan to be before one. He also made temples on high places and appointed priests from among all the people who were not of the Levites. And Jeroboam appointed a feast on the fifteenth day of the eighth month, like the feast that was in Judah, and he offered sacrifices on the altar." So he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he had made. And he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places that he had made. He went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel on the fifteenth day of the eighth month, in the month that he had devised from his own heart. And he instituted a feast for the people of Israel and went up to the altar to make offerings. What was Jeroboam doing? He, he, was, he had bad motivations, but he was attempting to make worship more accessible to the people. Don't go all the way to, the, to Jerusalem. He was afraid once they get to Jerusalem, they're going to go after Rehoboam again. He says, don't go all the way to Jerusalem for worship. We can worship right here. You don't need the temple. You don't need all of that furniture and the ark and the, the, the incense and the, the laver. And all, the, the, you don't need all that. Here, I'll make some calves. And notice how he describes these calves. Behold your gods who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. See, he has the right description of the God. He just has the wrong mode. He has calves. Who needs the temple? We have these calves. Who needs Jerusalem, the place where God has appointed? Just, just stay close. Who needs the Levites? I mean, anybody can kill a goat. Who needs God's appointed holy days? We can just make up our own in our own hearts. And if we continue reading, Jeroboam was killed for his sin. Because you don't worship in ways that God has not commanded. You don't devise in your own heart. 
ways to worship God. In Jeremiah chapter 32, example number 6, God is reprimanding His people through the prophet Jeremiah. And in verse 35 of Jeremiah chapter 32, He says, They built the high places of Baal in the valley of the son of Hinnom to offer up their sons and daughters to Molech, though I did not command them, nor did it enter into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. Notice, they offered up their sons and daughters to a false god, which I did not command them. You see, there are two sins that are named here. What, what if God had commanded it? You do it. You do what God says. But He had not commanded it. Therefore, it's a, it's a double sin. Offering your children as sacrifices to a false god and doing something God has not commanded and calling it worship. And God says, it's not even came into my mind to do this. See, today in our culture, thousands of children yet unborn are slaughtered at the altar, not of Molech, but the altar of self-preservation, of comfort, of freedom, unhindered sexual pleasure, and financial gain. And Christians are infuriated, as we should be. It's got to stop. But I wonder if we realize that this sin is on par with worshiping God in a way He has not commanded. Now, lest someone should say, well, that's the Old Testament and things are changed. Now, let's look at some New Testament examples. The pattern has been clearly established in the Old Testament. And the Old Testament and the New Testament are not separate ideas. They're not separate gods. They're not separate religions. They're the same thing, the same God. God has not changed and therefore, what he expects of his people has not changed. Now, some of the specific expressions of worship, such as the tabernacle and the sacrifices and the holy days that were particular to Israel, have been done away with because they had their fulfillment in Christ. And those things are stated specifically in the New Testament. But that does not mean that God has said, now you have nine commandments instead of ten or as most evangelicals would have eight. It doesn't mean we just do as we please and we say, well, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. We'll just do whatever we want to and call it worship. The principle hasn't changed. We studied recently Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 through 9. The Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father or his mother, What you would have gained for me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. Remember when we studied this, this Corbin law, you just say, well, it's for God. And you don't have to give it to your parents. See, they had added to God's commands. That was the first problem. Is there anything wrong with washing your hands before you eat? I hope not. We, we should. And God had commanded laws for purification and things like this. But this problem here shows the logical progression of man-made worship. This is what happens. This addition to God's commands. Well, we'll just wash more. And then perceiving that as acceptable to God is almost always uh, a, a pathway into just becoming more fond of your inventions than of God's law. You realize, well, hey, I can make up my own laws that are not nearly as 
strict or maybe make up my own laws that show me as more pious than everyone else and therefore I start to like this better than what God has actually commanded. And this is the problem in many groups that call themselves churches today. Show me churches that pride themselves in their creativity in worship and I'll show you churches where God's commands are taken very lightly or dismissed altogether. Show me a church where God's commands are taken lightly and I'll show you a church that will soon begin to introduce in God's worship things He never commanded nor did they enter into His mind because God's standard doesn't matter. Show me a church full of people who obsess over football on Sunday evenings and I'll show you a church who will eventually just make a football Sunday. We'll just wear our jerseys to church and bring our idolatry into the, the assembly of God's people. This is the logical progression of saying, I can worship however I please. Second example from the New Testament. Colossians chapter 2. Beginning in verse 16, Paul here, and the examples from the New Testament are great because there are a lot of teaching and you get to see how this stuff unfolds from the law of God. Remember, Paul was a Pharisee. He was a Jew. His concept of morality came from the Old Testament law. Colossians chapter 2, he says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. Now, if you're the average evangelical, you stop there and say, See, you can't tell me what to do. But he continues, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from which the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elementary, elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. Again, all these things in reference to Jewish laws. He says, They have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism, and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Now what's he saying? Paul's speaking to Gentiles. And he's referencing all of these Juda uh, um, Judaizing teachings, this, this, these Jewish regulations. He's saying, why would you let somebody come in here? You've been born again. You're saved. You're redeemed. You're a part of the body of Christ. You're being joined and knit together. And then somebody comes in and says, well, you need to act like a Jew. You need to worship in ways that God has not commanded you to worship. He commanded them to worship. And that's becoming old and passing away. He never commanded you to worship in that way. And he calls it self-made religion. They indeed have the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion. Literally, will worship. Will worship. Now I'm just going to read some quotes from commentators describing this term will worship. Worship, which one devises and prescribes for himself, contrary to the contents and nature of the faith which ought to be directed to Christ. Voluntarily adapt, adopted worship, whether unbidden or forbidden. A, worship, a form of worship which a man devises for himself. Worship not prescribed by God, but only by the will of man. A cultus which is freely chosen, which is not commanded or forbidden. In other words, it may not be commanded and is not explicitly forbidden, 
so that if used, such is innovative. A self-chosen worship that is willed by the will of those who want it and not a type of worship that is willed by God. The devotion was not authorized or commanded by Jesus Christ, but was stimulated by the dictates of an unregenerate heart. And the last one, a form of religion which fails to maintain the true object of worship and in place of Christ selects its own objects. See, these Gentile believers had never been commanded to observe Israel's feast days, their non-weekly Sabbaths, or their food laws. And so to adopt those things and call it worship may appear holy, and it may appear spiritual, and it may look good on the outside, but God says it, it's nothing. It doesn't mean anything. It has no advantage whatsoever. The third example from the New Testament in John 4, 24, the words of Jesus. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. God is spirit, that is His nature. That is His essence. That is how He has revealed Himself. Spirit. So those who would worship Him must worship Him in spirit. Worship Him according to His nature. According to how He has revealed Himself. Not according to man-made images. Not according to our own inventions. This is how God is. And your worship must be on par with how God is. Must worship in spirit and truth. What is truth? Where do we find truth? If I were to ask you, where can I go to find truth that will never change? You'd say, in the Bible alone. I would go to the Word. So you see the pattern has not changed even in the New Testament. We must only worship God, and we must worship God only in the ways He has commanded. That is the worship that belongs in the New Testament church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Only that which He has commanded. Romans 14.23, Paul says, For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Now let me ask, how can we come to have faith that what we do, and then attempt to call it worship, pleases God? Do I come in here and, and preach, assuming that my motivations are right and my heart is right, I come in here and preach and say, Well, man, I just, I really hope God don't mind if I preach. No, I don't do that. His Word says, preach the Word. Give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to, to exhortation and teaching. I know it. I don't have to question. He said it. I believe it. I trust it. That's faith. When we come together to pray, and I say, gosh, I hope God doesn't get upset that we prayed in church. No. I know we should pray in church because His Word commands it. When we sing, assuming we have songs that are honoring to God and pleasing to Him and, and proper and acceptable, and, and they allow everyone in the congregation to worship together. Assuming all that, and we sing, I don't have to say, man, I hope God is okay with us singing in church. I don't have to do that because His Word commands us to do these things. See, faith is made up of knowledge and belief and trust. And if I know what God has said in His Word, and I believe His Word to be true, and I take Him at His Word and trust it, then I just do what He says. That is faith. That's acting upon the revealed will of God, not according to my creativity. And if it's not done out of faith, if it doesn't proceed from faith, then it is sin. If we have to come in here and say, well, we're going to do this this Sunday, and the Bible never mentions it, but I mean, I'm kind of hoping that God likes it. That's not faith. That's blind wishing, and God hates it. God tells us very clearly what to do in His church. See, here's the problem. Everything that we touch 
as human beings, is, is automatically tainted with sin. It's, it's affected. It's going gonna, it's gonna to rot someday. And we have a hard time understanding this. We can't grasp that. We can't... It's like a kid who draws a picture for his father. His father just wads up and throws it away and says, you know, that's not very good. We, that would just rip our hearts out because we have this proclivity to think that whatever it is, it's the thought that counts. Even if it is, you know, out of the lines and looks really weird, it's, it's still acceptable, right? We can't imagine that our salute to the American flag in our worship service is not acceptable to God. Or better yet, our salute to the Christian flag. We can't imagine that our Veterans Day worship service doesn't please God because God loves veterans, because God loves America, His chosen nation. Why would we not do that in worship service? And we usually do it because America is our God. Why would God not be thrilled with our puppet show? I mean, those ladies, they stuck their hand in a sock and sang a song and it just we get all tickled and, and giggle about it. And, and why would God not like it? We can't imagine how God would not just be thrilled with our inventions. We can't imagine that God would not be thrilled with our Christmas play or our youth ministry or standing up in the service and shaking hands and saying, Hey, how are you? I hope you had a good weekend. Let's go back to our seat. We can't imagine how that could be unacceptable. But the problem is, it's not. It doesn't please God. Now, why is that? Why can we not understand how that doesn't please God? It's because we don't know God. See, we think, Nadab and Abihu, that was a little harsh. No, that was God. That was a big God. If we think that's harsh, it's because we don't know God. When Uzzah caught that ark, we say, man, he just killed him on the spot. That's a little harsh. No, that's a big God. That's what he does when you disobey. We don't know God. And so we think God is like us. And so if it gets us happy or if it makes us feel warm and fuzzy... If it tickles our hearts or whips us up into an emotional frenzy, then surely God's up in heaven just doing the same thing we are. Surely He just can't contain Himself. He's so excited because that's how we are. But God is not like us. Immediately after God gives the Ten Commandments to the children of Israel, He gives instructions concerning altars, which paints a very vivid picture. When God gives His law and you hear His law, and you have backed up from the mountain because you are terrified of this God, the automatic response is, where, where do we kill something? We need a place to kill something. Either I die, or some of these goats are going to die, but if this God's here, and this is His law, and I've fallen short, something must die. What's the rule about the altars? And so God immediately goes into laws about altars. And notice what He says. In Exodus 20 and verse 25, If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones, for if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. You see, the very first altar, the altar there of Exodus 20, would have no hewn stones. God is saying, if you sinful men begin to take my worship and use your human devices to try to pretty it up and make it look good and acceptable... You profane my worship and you profane my name. Get those rocks out of the dirt where I put them and build the altar and that will please me. But you start trying to pretty it up. It's profane worship. Cain thought his produce. 
the work of his hands. He had worked that ground. He had worked. He had sweat. He had, he had probably shed blood over this produce. And he thought, surely God would love the first. I'm going to give him the first, the best of my produce that I've worked for. He thought God would like that more than the life of the animal that God had put there. Moses thought that striking the rock the second time would be equally as effective as when he did it the first time. And as a great New Testament picture, the rock must only be struck once for all of God's people to be watered with provisions. You don't strike the rock twice. Nadab and Abihu thought that their fire was just as useful from wherever, the campfire, wherever they got it. They thought, well, that's just as useful as the fire from the altar. Jeroboam thought his high places, his priests, his holiday was just as good as those that God had commanded, if not better, because, hey, it's a lot more accessible. I mean, people can get to it a lot easier without going all the way to Jerusalem. The Pharisees thought, surely washing more is more acceptable to God, and surely giving my money to the service of the temple is a better stewardship of my money than giving it to my old and decrepit parents who are going to die in a couple years. See, we just assume that our own ideas are on par with God's requirements. We think we're way up here, and God is about right here. We don't understand. No, God is infinitely above, and we're infinitely below. Our ideas don't thrill Him. He's God. So what does the commandment say at this point? What is the, the real problem? shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Why would you be jealous? You're just worshiping me in a way I haven't commanded. Why, is that, why does that make him jealous? Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. Why do men do this? Why must we create in our own hearts and of our own creativity ways to worship God? Why, why are we so inclined to do it? I mean, it's just, it's like a given you, you plant a church, it's a given. Well, what, what are y'all going to be? Y'all going to be tradition? Y'all going to be contemporary? What's your purpose statement going to be? What are y'all going to do? What's going to be your thing? We just, we just assume that we are to create this thing. And the problem is, the commandment says, this makes God jealous because what you're doing, first of all, is you're displaying that you hate God. You can't stand the way that He has prescribed worship. You don't like Him. You don't like, you hate the way He's revealed Himself. And so you're just going to come up with your own ways to worship God. And so we devise ultimately our own gods. If we are coming to worship in a way we have devised and we think that, that God is pleased, you're not worshiping the God of the Bible. You're worshiping a God of your own imagination and that makes Him jealous. It's idolatry. The Puritan Thomas Watson says this, This divine worship God is very jealous of. This is the apple of his eye. This is the pearl of his crown, which he guards as he did the tree of life with cherubims and a flaming sword that no man may come near it to violate it. Divine worship must be such as God himself hath appointed, else it is offering strange fire. The Lord would have Moses make the tabernacle, quote, according to the pattern in the mount. He must not leave out anything in the pattern nor add to it. If God was so exact and curious about the place of worship, how exact will He be about the matter of His worship? Surely here everything must be according to the pattern prescribed in His Word. When we as a church draw near to God and we begin to get closer to our God and we see God for who He is, 
and we begin to understand His holiness, then we will begin to see ourselves as we truly are. And we we'll realize we're a helpless race. God creates us, we rebel, God rescues us, and then we're going to come and say, I think you should be worshipped this way. We're a helpless race apart from God coming to us and saying this is what's expected. And here in these 66 books, this is where God tells us what is expected of us. There are many things that because we're humans, because we have God's image imprinted on us, because we have uh, the light of some sort of knowledge in us, we can figure out on our own. If it's cold, get out of the cold. If that's a fire, don't put your hand in it. We can figure that out without special revelation. How to worship God is not one of those things. We're not born just knowing, well, God desires to be worshipped this way. It's not something we can contrive. It's not something we can initiate. It's not something we can invent. Our minds and our hearts are simply too dark. We're too far gone. He must come with special revelation and say, Worship me like this. So when we gather in this place with this group of people, this church, and we come on the Lord's Day to worship God, this is a most solemn assembly, a holy convocation, Hebrews says. We are joining in the eternal worship service that has always been happening in the, the assembly of angels and the assembly of the firstborn. We're coming to worship God. This is the very apex of our existence as individuals, as families, as Christians. This is the most important thing that we do in our lives come together in the called out assembly and display our devotion to our God. And God will have worship His way. And God will show steadfast love to those who love Him and display that love by keeping His commandments. That's the law. Let's pray.